Um, I think I think she's just going to you know, hang out for a bit. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Um, I'm going to just make a brief announcement about um, CME sign-in. This is our last day using paper sign-in for um, uh, requesting CME credit. We'll be starting the mobile sign-in next week. You've gotten a couple of emails from Jessica Kinsey, and we'll get another one um, this week. And there's also uh, a reminder at the bottom of today's form with the website where you can go to make sure you're registered if you're going to use your cell phone to sign in. It's a much more efficient process, and it'll help you if you haven't used it before to get your cell phone signed in ahead of time. Don't forget to bring your cell phone to next week's conference. Um, and with that, I will welcome Robert McClellan to introduce today's speaker. Dr. McClellan is a full professor in the Department of Medicine, the Department of Community Family Medi and Family Medicine, and the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. He's the section chief for occupational and environmental medicine and the medical director for Live Well, Work Well. <coughs> Well, good morning, and uh, I am truly delighted to um, present to you Mark Rusi, a really good friend of mine for decades now, and a great colleague and someone I uh, frequently counsel when it comes to the topic of his, uh, his uh, talk today. He's a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the Yale School of Medicine and medical director of the Wellness and Employee Population Health Program for the Yale New Haven Health System and is board certified in internal medicine and occupational medicine. Well, coming to Dartmouth is like a visit. It's a homecoming. Um, and no matter how blue his blood may flow right now, his heart truly pumps green. Um, having graduated from Dartmouth College enough years ago that his class is expected to donate generously to the <laughs> alumni fund. <laughs> Uh, wisely, before launching his medical career, uh, he enjoyed a year as a Fulbright scholar studying music uh, in Germany at the uh, Johannes Gutenberg uh, University, and he remains an accomplished pianist, uh, and I understand uh, that you've passed your gift on to your son. Um, he's uh, tried out the West Coast uh, briefly, uh, where he completed his medical school training at uh, UCSF, uh, but found his home at Yale for his internal medicine and, uh, residency and occupational medicine fellowship, uh, where he's worked as a faculty member since 1993 with both academic, clinical, and programmatic responsibilities. Over the years at Yale, he's taught and directed numerous courses uh, at the Yale Public Health School and medical school, as well as mentoring students uh, and residents at the bedside, and his excellence as an educator was just recognized with the Lowenstein Teaching Award at the Yale Medical School commencement just this year. Uh, he has been uh, truly a thought leader in medical center occupational health, having helped author comprehensive guidelines on this topic, um, and has had a particular interest in occupational infectious diseases. He's a long-standing member of the Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee, HICPAC, and has served on numerous HICPAC and Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, uh, and other governmental working groups developing guidance on infection control practices, immunizations, and healthcare worker-related infectious disease issues. Since 1994, he served as a Director of Occupational uh, Health at the Yale Haven Hospital and has provided oversight of a busy occupational health clinic and led workplace interventions to minimize employee hazards and has led the initiation and oversight of numerous employee wellness programs. Most recently, Yale Haven has expanded his role to provide medical direction of wellness and employee population health throughout the Yale Haven system. Over the years, he's published an extensive bibliography of papers, chapters, and guidelines, and lectured extensively around the country, addressing a range of occupational health issues. And today, he's going to talk about a subject at the heart of keeping healthcare workers, all of us, safe something in the air. Thank you so much, Bob. Um, it's, it's truly a privilege to be here. It's, it's wonderful to be back uh, at Dartmouth. I often tell our students and residents and fellows um, that some of the most intriguing work we do in occupational and environmental medicine actually addresses patients who never walk through the doors of our clinics. The roots of our field really lie in 
preventive medicine, and as such, we occupy a, a certain nether niche on the landscape of medicine, interfacing pretty substantially with public health. And as such, we spend a lot of time trying to keep injuries and exposures and diseases from occurring. And in medical centers, the past 15 years have been a particularly rich time uh, uh, for this. In the wake of the terrorist attacks of 9-11-2001 uh, and the bioterrorist attacks which uh, followed that, those who tend to the public health infrastructure in this country went about shoring up our defenses uh, against biological agents. And hospitals around the country put in place elaborate plans to handle surge volumes, stockpiled antidotes and prophylactic medications, and wrestled with difficult issues around the isolation of potentially infectious patients and the provision of appropriate personal protective equipment uh, uh, for healthcare workers. Not long after we took those steps to protect against bioterrorist agents, we were visited in 2002 with SARS, in 2003 with monkeypox, in 2004 with the first human-to-human -human transmissions of H5N1 avian influenza. In 2009, of course, was novel H1N1 influenza. 2012, MERS. 2013, H7N9 influenza. 2014, Ebola virus disease. And of course, now there's Zika virus. We live in a world which is increasingly populous and contiguous and interlaced. We are encroaching on formerly remote environments. We are changing the climate, changing the ranges of vectors. And emerging infectious diseases are only going to become more common. And with that, we need to be able to respond with appropriate guidance. I think I'd be safe in saying that in circles where guidance is formulated, one of the key questions has always been, how does this disease spread? Do we know enough about how this disease spreads? And what are the appropriate and reasonable steps we can take to try to protect the front line, namely us? So I'll begin this morning by telling just some stories. And they're kind of strange stories, sort of slightly out of the way stories. And I'm telling them for the very reason that they represent something which is unusual, something which is really an exception to what we regard as uh, uh, the rules. But I'll also tell you that at the CDC and in places like Geneva, these are stories that people felt couldn't be ignored. Following that, I want to talk a little bit about the the actual phenomena that may underlie the epiphenomena of occasional longer-range transmission of diseases that are supposed to only be transmitted when people are really close to one another. And then I'll finish by mentioning uh, 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 some of the guidance that has emerged and some of the steps that we probably need to take uh, going forward. So to, to begin, th this is the general categorization. There is airborne transmission, droplet transmission, contact transmission, which I don't have up here because we're really going to be talking about these two. We regard airborne transmission as something that occurs when an individual releases particles by coughing or sneezing, which are small enough to remain suspended in the air and to potentially travel over longer distances. And the classic three examples of airborne transmission are tuberculosis, measles, and varicella. Droplet transmission is something that happens when people expel larger uh, bits of moisture that are laden with infectious particles. And we think of those larger droplets as basically arcing down from the cough to the floor. And if you're within about three feet, you risk uh, infection from that. But if you're far away, then we don't think that you have much risk. And there are lots of examples of infections that are spread this way. I've listed a few um, meningococcus, adenovirus, uh, uh, pertussis. So the first story is in New Haven. Not as pretty as Hanover, not as pretty as the college on the hill. But if you're into neo-faux gothic, it's the place to be. <laughs> 
So just below the sports final, deadly virus at Yale. And just a little digression, when this happened, I had just begun on the faculty, and it was also my first real encounter with the press. And I remember on one of the press, at one of the press conferences sitting in the Ficken Amphitheater, and there was a reporter who was warming up to this grand crescendo. And he stood up from his seat, and he said, how can Yale New Haven Hospital be so irresponsible as to treat a deadly virus in our own community? which, of course, we had never, ever done before. <laughs> so here's the story. Um, this was a visiting scientist working in our Arboviral Research Center, uh, uh, actually a scientist from France. And on his way back from Boston, a, a trip that he took with his family, he began developing myalgias, uh, some headache, a stiff neck, and uh, fever. He took ibuprofen for a couple of days, but the symptoms persisted. And on the 19th of August, he called the Tropical Medicine Clinic because he was concerned that he might be having a recrudescence of his plasmodium vivax. And he had the good fortune to actually see a quite good clinician, uh, uh, Michelle Berry, uh, who is uh, now uh, the Dean for International Health at, at Stanford, but was a member of our faculty for a long time. And this patient reported at the time no tick bites, no recent travel, no significant uh, spills in his uh, laboratory work. He looked a little bit toxic. Blood pressure was 130 over 80, pulse of 90, respiratory rate of 12. He was mildly febrile. He was on ibuprofen. Notably, there was no skin rash. There was a little bit of conjunctival uh, injection. He had some shoddy anterior cervical nodes. Uh, of the lungs and heart sounded fine. There was no organomegaly. There was no edema. His white cap was a little bit low. The crit was fine. His platelets also were a little bit low at 138,000, and he was spilling some protein in his urine. <coughs> Notably, the malaria smear was negative. There also were no orlicule inclusions, and the ALT was mildly elevated. So um, when Michelle saw these results, she kind of sat with him and said, are you sure nothing happened in your laboratory? And he had, quote, unquote, delayed recall of the following incident. He had been spinning um, concentrated uh, Sabya virus uh, in, in a centrifuge at 10,000 RPM for about 10 minutes. And he reached down, and he, he opened up the rotor here. And there were six 200cc uh, uh, centrifuge tubes in there. And he started to pull one of them out, and it kind of stuck to the bottom of the rotor. It had obviously cracked and leaked. And so he sort of opened up that rotor, and he poured some bleach down into it, and he took some paper towels and sponged that out. And then he lifted the whole thing and brought it over to a fume hood, and he poured bleach around. He went back to the centrifuge. Uh, by the way, it, this bearded researcher was wearing a surgical mask, gown, and gloves uh, during this. And once he had gotten it all cleaned up, he continued working for two or three hours uh, in the laboratory. And he didn't let anybody know about this because he didn't think that there had been an important uh, exposure uh, that took place. And it took place, actually, on the top floor of this building. This is our School of uh, Public Health. Well, obviously, there were a number of issues here. The rotor should never even have been opened um, if, unless uh, one uh, had been working in a biosafety hood. Um, and he should have left the room immediately, which he didn't do. Um, he then cleaned the thing by pouring bleach into it and really was not wearing personal protective equipment, though a powered air purifying respirator was there for his use. And he let no one know about this. He was working with a virus um, that had only caused two infections uh, before, one of which uh, had been uh, fatal. Uh, and the other infection actually was a quite lengthy influenza-like uh, uh, illness. This was Sabya virus a member of the Takarib uh, complex of uh, arena viruses. And so on a Friday evening at about 5 o'clock, he moved from the Tropical Medicine Clinic uh, over to Yale New Haven Hospital and came into the emergency department, which looks like this, open, open ward, just some curtains uh, uh, separating uh, the beds. Um, 
Oh, sorry, I'm not sure how that got there. Um, and of course, the emergency room is is full of full of people. These are some members of our uh, house staff working down in the major medical area of the emergency room. And you don't spend very much time in the ER before your blood gets drawn. And it gets placed into these little missiles that go through a tube system that flies throughout uh, the hospital uh, to the lab. You can imagine the consequence of a test tube bursting in that tube system, aerosolizing blood um, as it's flying along. Um, and it arrives at the lab where it doesn't just go into a machine, it goes into an open room where it's opened up and people have it and they take the stopper off. And so this is what happened on that Friday evening. Um, I happened to be attending on the medical service and on Saturday morning we were about halfway through rounds and one of the interns came running down the hall toward me and it actually happened to be the little brother of my college roommate. And he said, Mark, I've just been assigned a patient with hemorrhagic fever. What should I do? So I want you to just place yourself in my position for a moment. Um, I, I was overseeing occupational health for the hospital. This is the very first I had heard that this patient had been admitted. He had been in the hospital for 12 hours. He traveled back from Boston. Uh, samples had been sent to the laboratory. All kinds of people had interacted with him. And he was sitting in a regular patient uh, uh, care room. So while you think about some of the things that need, would need to be seen to, let me just digress for a moment and tell another story. This one takes place in Jos, uh, Nigeria. And Jos sits in the central part of Nigeria at about 4,000 feet altitude. It's, it's savanna, gets about 50 inches of rain a year, but it has a dry season from October uh, uh, to April. And it, it, it's also the site where Lhasa fever was first treated. Lhasa was discovered in Lhasa. It was a missionary nurse who came down with this illness. Uh, she was transported to Jos. Uh, she died. Uh, two of, uh, one of the two people who cared for her also died. And that was actually the first description of Lhasa fever. That was in January of 1969. So this is just about exactly a year later. The University of Ibadan received notice from the Evangel Hospital in Jos that they had had a cluster of cases that looked a lot like Lassa fever. And they actually were able to do serological testing. They confirmed that it was Lassa fever. Um, uh, samples were later sent to the CDC, uh, and um, a culture revealed, in fact, that it was Lassa fever. 23 patients, all but three of them were treated at the Evangel uh, Hospital. There seemed to be two patient groups, or about 18 patients, who got Lassa fever right around the same time in this hospital. And then there was a group of five patients uh, who, who followed just a little bit uh, uh, later. So people tried to figure out what had gone on. They, they looked for common experiences of the folks who had gotten uh, the disease, and it turned out that there really hadn't been a common social gathering that they had been at. But most of the patients lived right around uh, uh, Jos. Um, uh, and then they looked at the pattern and, and saw that there was one individual whose symptoms had preceded uh, the others by uh, uh, several days. And it turned out that the first 17 patients were in the hospital at the same time uh, as this patient. And it took them about a year to catch up with this patient, actually in Lagos. And it was a young woman who had returned to her village of Basa in September. Um, and had given birth in November, remained in the home for 40 days after the birth, and became febrile on Christmas Day, 1969, and came to the Evangel Hospital on uh, December uh, 30th. So this is what the outbreak looked like. This is, this is that patient. And then these are the 18, uh, or rather the 17 patients who followed. And you can see the consequences died, died, died. This was a, it was a horrible outbreak. And you can see that everyone got sick right around the same time. And then there's sort of a, a secondary group here who had had contact with, with some of the members of the, of the first group. Well, what caused this? One of the first things uh, people looked at was, you know, what, were there things that all of these patients had been exposed to? And they had all been exposed to some of the same bedpans, emesis basins. The hospital was T-shaped, and everyone who got sick was on one arm of the T, and they were on the same arm where this woman uh, uh, was treated. 
they considered that maybe nurses or ward personnel had passed it from patient to patient, but the same nurses and ward personnel worked throughout the hospital. The only people who got sick were on this arm of the T. Food supplies tended to be brought in uh, by the patient's family, so that wasn't very uh, compelling. Once those patients left the hospital, there didn't continue to be infections and people coming into the hospital, and so persistent surface contamination wasn't very compelling. They even trapped about 40 animals uh, of various species living around the hospital, and none was serologically positive uh, for Lassa fever. And they were left with the explanation that people least wanted to embrace, which was the possibility that this had actually spread via the airborne route. And there's that picture. So uh, pa the patient was, was in sort of a, a corner uh, 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 bed with the prevailing uh, breeze blowing across an open window across uh, the bed's downwind. And these were the people who had gotten sick. So this is a study that, that people, I mean, it, it's unusual. There aren't really other examples of Lassa fever spreading this way. Um, but people really didn't have a very good explanation uh, uh, for this, other than, the, other than the possibility of airborne spread in fairly crowded conditions, dry conditions, by the way. Uh, and the patient was doing a lot of coughing, and, and uh, it, it was the downwind uh, uh, people. So coming back to our story in, uh, at uh, New Haven, I would love to tell you that I was intimately familiar with this outbreak at the time that this happened. Um, uh, I was not. But um, we, uh, we let the CDC know that we had this case. Um, PCR was actually done also. It confirmed Sabia. And at this time, the guidance was that standard barrier precautions were all that were uh, necessary and droplet precautions. And we made the decision. It was the third case in the world so far. It had a mortality of 50% to implement airborne precautions. And we moved the patient into a negative pressure isolation suite. There are two rooms that were negative pressure to the ante room. You're standing in the ante room right now looking into the rooms. And the ante room was negative to the hallway. So we were able to use the adjacent negative pressure room to store things that have been contaminated by the patient uh, for, for then transport in a closed cart to an autoclave. Um, and the anteroom was used as a staging area. This was 1994. We were just getting going with the use of respirators and healthcare workers. And so we needed to look at any healthcare worker who would interact with the person, did um, sort of urgent fit testing of those folks to make sure they knew how to use their uh, HEPA masks. and and we combined airborne precautions with contact precautions and, and eye protection. We discontinued all the lab work until we could figure out uh, how we wanted to handle that. Uh, we ended up using something called Triton X100, a detergent uh, that neutralized the virus um, but didn't interfere with the chemistry uh, uh, samples um, for the culture count or hematology. The bleach was run through uh, a, a couple of cycles after those samples were run. Um, other tests were done in a BSL-3 facility uh, that we have uh, under a hood, um, obviously put in place notification of the lab. We stopped using the tube system, hand carried uh, 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 samples uh, there. Um, we had to think about uh, what might happen if this guy got very sick. Our ICU at this time looked a lot like our emergency department. It was an open ward that probably wasn't a very good setting. And so we put into place plans to bring the ICU to that negative uh, uh, pressure uh, um, suite. At the same time, we had lots of people who had been exposed, lots of people who were quite panicked. The number was about 160 all in all, uh, folks uh, who had been exposed in Boston, in his lab, in the clinic, in the hospital, uh, uh, and, and, and in, our, in our clinical uh, labs. Uh, we worked with the CDC to figure out uh, the, the stratifications of risk. Fortunately, no one had been intimate with him. No one had gotten a needle stick. And so the exposures were, by and large, not regarded as high risk. Um, but we had to meet with each one of those individuals. We then set up a, 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 a fever and symptom monitoring system 
um, for them to abide by for 60 days. Um, they had a telephone number to call in if they developed any symptoms because the last thing we would want would be for somebody to sort of go to their doctor's office, sit in the waiting room, and expose other people. So we developed a triage system to bring them immediately into negative pressure isolation. It was an amazing experience. Oh, and, and just, we also, you know, the plan also is that if he got really sick, we would have progressed to a higher level of respiratory uh, uh, protection. Uh, as well, but we learned so much from this, and it was it was also instructive just to see how much one patient completely turned upside down uh, uh, the entire uh, hospital. I have to say that going into the Ebola virus thing a couple of years ago, I, I felt that we had a bit of a head start because we had gone through uh, uh, this experience. So. Um, <coughs> The CDC um, uh, came, they were with us, and they actually made some changes in the hemorrhagic fever guidance following uh, uh, this. And they ag agreed that it was a good idea to admit someone into negative pressure isolation, particularly in case they got worse and uh, might uh, uh, be, uh, uh, we might have to intubate them, they might generate short range uh, aerosols. And this was the guidance as of 1995. Unfortunately, they actually departed from this guidance in 2005. And I think it, they, I think that there might not have been such a difficult. I mean, I mean, you may remember there was a lot of gnashing of teeth in 2014 around concerns in Dallas and some of the CDC guidance being too lax. The hemorrhagic fever guidance was was not as stringent as this. Um, that was issued in 2005, and that's actually what was in place uh, uh, at the time that we had Ebola. So, um, again, um, the, the main reason we did what we did was we wanted to play, uh, play it on the safe side. Uh, it was a new infection. We were really uh, uh, implementing something called the precautionary principle, which in, in simpler terms is better safe than sorry. Look twice before you leap. Or this is my favorite one. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure uh, from a man given to flying kites and lightning storms with keys attached to the strings. <laughs> but stated more formally, and this really comes from the world of environmental law, the requirement that decision makers anticipate harm before it occurs Within this element lies an implicit reversal of the onus of proof. Under the precautionary principle, it is the responsibility of an activity proponent to establish that the proposed activity will not or is very unlikely to result in significant harm. The establishment of an obligation at the level of harm may be high for action to prevent or minimize such harm even when the absence of scientific certainty makes it difficult to predict the likelihood of harm occurring or the level of harm should it occur. The need for control measures increases with both the level of possible harm and the degree of uncertainty. It may well be that all kinds of stuff we did was unnecessary. Um, his clinical course, by the way, uh, the nadir of his white count uh, was, I think, 1,200. His platelets got down to 98,000. And then he recovered really well. He was treated with ribavirin. Um, we had. Uh, of, of the, of, among the hospital workers, of, of, there were about 138. There was one individual who right at the very end of when we were monitoring developed a bit of fever. Um, PCR, serologies were all negative in that individual. No one else developed symptoms. And it may well be that everything we did was overkill. Um, but this just, the, a small digression, was the next arena virus to be uh, described. This is the Lujo virus an outbreak in 2008. Um, and the index patient was someone who had gotten sick in uh, uh, Zambia. He was then airlifted to Stanton, South Africa. Um, there were secondary infections and a paramedic who attended to him during the flight, a nurse who attended uh, him in the intensive care unit, a member of the hospital staff who cleaned the room, and there was a tertiary case of someone uh, uh, who had attended uh, the second uh, uh, case. And the course of the disease in cases one through four uh, was fatal. Uh, the fifth uh, case received ribavirin treatment and uh, recovered. So the next story, and this one is actually a little better known, uh, uh, takes place uh, at a place called Meshed, uh, uh, Germany. And ironically, it takes place 
pretty much the same time as the Jost story <laughs> took place, uh, January of 1970. There was a, a young German uh, a fellow who had been sort of living on the streets in Karachi, Pakistan, and he flew home to Germany on New Year's Eve, and within several days uh, began uh, uh, having fever and uh, feeling bad, and he was admitted to the Meshed uh, Hospital. And on the fourth day in the hospital, he developed a rather characteristic uh, rash, and he was transferred to an isolation uh, hospital a couple of days later. Those who had had direct contact with him were vaccinated. Um, uh, the patients in the hospital who had had direct contact were quarantined. And then a total of 17 cases just started coming out of the woodwork in the hospital. And many of those cases had had no contact with him at all. This was a disease that was almost erased from the world uh, in 1970, but not uh, quite. Any, any guesses? It's smallpox, right, right. So um, there was even, there was a man who had come into the hospital stood in the main entrance of the hospital for 15 minutes to have a conversation with his mother's physician, then left the hospital. He got smallpox. There was a nun on the third floor. This index patient was on the first floor. Um, and the staffs of the floors were distinct, as were the kitchen facilities. A nun on the third floor in her, in who, ne who had never left her room got sick with smallpox. And a, few, a little while after this all took place, they did smoke testing. And lo and behold, where the smoke uh, 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 went was actually where the patients were, a total of 17 patients. In the wake of 9-11, when smallpox was regarded as a credible bioterrorist threat, this was the study that everyone said, what about Meshed? There's really not much other evidence that smallpox spreads in any way other than by people being fairly close to one another. But the question always came up, what about Meshed? Because there isn't a good explanation for these transmissions other than under those conditions uh, with low humidity and unidirectional flow in the ventilation system. Uh, that this was actually spreading via the airborne route. And so the guidance and the WHO guidance had basically uh, uh, been uh, gloves, caps, gowns, and surgical masks. The guidance from CDC was that it should be a combination of airborne precautions and contact precautions, largely because of Meshed, uh, and that one could pull back from that only if there had been a full uh, vaccine take. So the next story takes place in Hong Kong. Um, 8,098 cases, 774 deaths, a case fatality rate of nearly 10%, and about 20% of all the cases in this outbreak uh, were healthcare workers. Um, uh, extremely high attack rates of this uh, when it first broke because no one knew what was going on and no protections were in place. So in Vietnam, Singapore, and also in the Canadian outbreak. So I'm sure you know what this is. This is SARS. And the most, I mean, the two amazing things about SARS, I think the first is that it disappeared. We just haven't seen cases of SARS since 2003. And the other is that most people who got SARS didn't spread it very readily, but there were these super spreaders. And the, uh, and the, the most discussed one of these was an individual who had stayed at a place called the Metropole Hotel in Hong Kong. And people exposed to this individual on that floor ended up sparking epidemics in, in Canada, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, Hong Kong. And this was an individual who had actually come from Guangdong province of China, which is where SARS uh, uh, started. So um, there were several outbreaks of SARS, and this was a very strange one. The Amoy Gardens uh, apartment complex were several 33-story uh, buildings, and each story was eight apartment units. And there was an outbreak that just took off like wildfire in units seven and eight in building E, so sort of a vertical clustering of disease that all happened uh, uh, at once. And people tried to think through what what's going on here? Um, was this animals? Was this elevator buttons? What, what, what is common to, to all of these people? There was a very interesting paper in the New England Journal 2004 um, that um, suggested that this is actually what, has, uh, 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 what had happened. So the U-trap, 
uh, the little U-shaped thing underneath the sink. Um, why is that there? Well, it's, it, it's there to keep sort of psoriasis and things like that from coming back up into your bathroom. So you have a little column of water. So the bathrooms in the Amoy Gardens complex had a drain at the, at the very sort of center of the bathroom itself. And you can imagine if nobody spilled anything or the tub didn't overflow for a long period of time, eventually that little U-shaped column of water would dry out. And one of the things that characterized the Moy Gardens outbreak was that lots of people had really, really profuse uh, 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 diarrhea. So, so here's the theory, um, that the index patient uh, uh, here, uh, a lot of diarrhea stool, which was going into the sewer stack here with a fair amount of energy, potential aerosolization of droplets uh, 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 from that. And then here's a unit with a dry U-trap. And the bathroom, of course, has negative pressure because there's an exhaust fan in the bathroom. Um, and this would have been able, so the theory goes, to pull aerosolized uh, uh, material up into that bathroom, potentially infecting an individual there, and then moving up into the ventilation uh, uh, stack here, where it could have gone to, uh, to other floors. And this was actually regarded as being a pretty compelling explanation. We don't know that that's what happened, but this was, this was, um, this was regarded as being uh, 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 an interesting explanation. And there were a few other outbreaks of SARS that suggested that maybe it hadn't been just immediate uh, 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 close contact. Um, and for that reason, when guidance was put together uh, uh, for SARS, it actually emphasized uh, uh, the combination of uh, airborne and uh, contact uh, precautions. So again, erring on the, on the side of, of caution. Well, the next story, I've sort of placed this in Atlanta, but it didn't really, I mean, it happened all over. And uh, this, of course, is a, this is a normal flu season, and this is what things looked like in 2009, where uh, the novel H1N1 virus just took off in April, May, uh, through the summer. There was sort of that second wave, you may recall. And then by the time we got to the normal flu season, really nothing uh, uh, was going on. So what was different about novel H1N1? It's not that it killed more people. But you had an unvaccinated population, pregnant women, young people uh, were dying in seasonal flu. About 90% of mortality occurs in people over the age of 65. Uh, during this <coughs> outbreak, about 90% of the mortality was actually occurring in people under the age of 65. So there were reasons to think of, to regard this a little more seriously than seasonal flu seasonal flu. And a lot of people thought, well, gosh, let's just take a look again at what evidence there might be that influenza might not just spread by droplets, but could spread over longer distances. The Moser study is, is, is a study that's frequently uh, quoted. There was a plane that was held in Alaska for about five hours. And for three hours, the ventilation system was shut down. And there was a young woman who was coming down with influenza, getting very sick, uh, uh, high fever, coughing. And she was in a seat in the plane as it sat there for three hours, didn't really move from her seat, and 72% of the 54 passengers who were on this plane got sick within a few days of having been on the plane. And it was the same strain that, that she had had. And this study is frequently quoted as being at least strongly suggestive of a pattern of airborne spread over longer distances than, uh, uh, than three feet. Now, it's possible you know, all of those passengers came and somehow got very close to that individual, but that's not uh, regarded as being uh, quite as likely an explanation. There are a couple of other um, epidemiological studies that are regarded as being suggestive. This one I don't think is as convincing. Basically showed that the more fresh air you have, uh, the less flu you have. It's a comparison in different uh, uh, buildings. There are all kinds of other factors uh, that could impact uh, uh, that. And while this is, this is often cited, um, I don't think it's as compelling. This one is a little more frequently cited. This was during the Asian flu epidemic of 1957, comparing tuberculosis patients who were in a ward where there was upper zone ultraviolet irradiation of um, uh, the air in the room. 
um, uh, and compared to tuberculosis patients who were housed in other buildings where there was no upper zone UV irradiation. Um, and health, the same healthcare workers actually worked in all of these buildings. The attack rate among the healthcare workers was 18%, 19% among those who were not in the upper zone UV irradiated uh, building, but only 2% uh, there. Um, there was the opportunity for interaction with the community in all of these buildings. There are certainly reasons why one building can have a lot of flu and another building can't, um, uh, other than that, it, that there might have been something going on here with upper zone UV irradiation. Um, but the point that's often made with this is that is this, this may have suggested that the intervention of upper zone UV irradiation, which is something that would really only be effective in decreasing a virus that's floating around a room on air currents and really would not be expected to impact a droplet, a droplet transmission. So somewhat suggestive as well. Well, <clears throat> this was a study that was actually done during 2009 with novel H1N1. It was a 30-bed open medical ward that looked like this. Over in the upper right-hand corner, bed A, was where there was a patient who was non-invasively ventilated for about 18 hours. He was getting sicker and sicker, coughing a lot, and there were nine patients and two healthcare workers who got sick. Um, everyone who got sick was either in uh, uh, the area where this patient was treated, uh, uh, in this area, but no one got sick down here. This was all open. Uh, these beds were not uh, much farther than were these beds. But when they did uh, uh, air testing to see where the air currents had gone, everything went in this direction, and that's where folks got sick. So this also was uh, cited as being possibly suggestive of longer uh, uh, range uh, spread of, of influenza. Much more typical is this sort of study. This is what most studies look like uh, with influenza, is that when people are pretty close together, uh, they get sick, and when they're not very close together, uh, they don't get sick. So this is much more the norm. This also uh, uh, was during uh, 2009 with novel H1N1. So we've sort of been talking about the epidemiological evidence. Um, does everyone know, does anyone know what this is? You know. It's the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Right? So there's a really obtuse reason that I have this picture up here. I was having a conversation with one of my sons about epidemiology. And I said, well, you know, it's, we look at epiphenomena, not phenomena. So an epidemiologist would be sitting on the road down there and would notice that no more cars were going by. And would say, well, something has happened. But it wouldn't know exactly what has happened. So if you want to know what has happened, you actually have to look at the thing itself. So what governs uh, the behavior of, of aerosols? This is Stokes' law. And the main thing to pay attention to is that as the radius gets smaller and smaller, the settling velocity gets lower and lower. So returning to that picture that we started out with, it turns out that a 20, uh, uh, a 20 micron particle doesn't just sort of do this and, and go to the floor. For it to go to fall from 10 feet to the floor actually takes four minutes. And that's in the absence of any horizontal uh, uh, vector. And as you start getting down in the lower range, a 10 micron particle, 17 minutes, a 5 micron particle, 67 minutes to fall. And that, again, is without any horizontal uh, uh, air current. So, so a 20 micron particle actually does stay aloft uh, for a bit. And once you get below 5 microns, you essentially have particles that are afloat. Um, the other thing that happens, and this happens more quickly the drier the air is, and that's important, um, is that droplets are expelled, they desiccate, and as they get smaller in their desiccation as they're falling, they become floatier and floatier. And this is cited by many as being the reason we have um, an epidemic of flu every winter, because we're in indoor spaces with, with dry air, and, and there may be uh, some truth to that. The other um, thing that's determined by the size is, of course, where it gets in the respiratory tract. So a 5 micron particle has about a 30% uh, penetration to the alveoli. Um, a 10 micron particle is, is getting mostly caught in the tracheobronchial region, and there's really no penetration of a 20 micron particle uh, beyond uh, uh, the trachea. So 
that's how aerosols behave. What, what do we know about uh, flu virus and aerosols? And this would be a key question to ask. Can flu actually be detected on particles in this uh, dimension? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. There are a number of studies that have shown that there's PCR detectable flu virus this one, 49% of the PCR-detectable flu virus was actually on particles in the 1 to 4 micron size. So these are aerosols. These are floating uh, particles. This one uh, looked at aerosols, 24% uh, positive for flu A. 42% of the influenza A RNA was in particles less than 4.1 microns. In this uh, study, an average of 64% of viral genome copies were associated with particles smaller than 2.5 microns uh, uh, in this uh, uh, study. And this was a study with quiet breathing, actually, that showed that 87% of the exhaled particles were in the 1 micron or less uh, uh, range. So we know from PCR testing that flu virus RNA can be found on aerosols. But what don't we know? PCR testing doesn't tell us whether the virus is viable. But it turns out there's a literature that goes way back to the 1960s and 1970s, where they produced aerosols, kept them aloft for many, many hours, and then tested to see if you could infect chick embryos or mice or ferrets. And those studies uh, uh, were positive. And there have been subsequent uh, uh, studies that have been done that are, are, are positive. Well, you'd like to see whether animals can actually give this to each other. And ideally, if you had animals separated by wire mesh cages, they couldn't have contact with one another. If they coughed and it were just droplet spread, the cough wouldn't go very far. And these animals aren't very far off the ground, mice and ferrets. Um, so there were studies that were done where there was separation by a meter or two of the animals. And the studies were positive. In some of those studies, the recipient animal was actually at a higher level than the source animal. And one particular study that was done way back in 1941, uh, where there was unidirectional air movement through a tunnel of about two and a half meters from a sick animal, and the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, control animal was infected uh, by the sick animal. There have been subsequent studies uh, more recently, and some of those also have shown that uh, transmission is enhanced when the humidity level is uh, lower. Well, what about human beings? Um, back when people could do things uh, like, there we go, like this. Um, it was shown that, uh, uh, that 17 to 19% of human subjects who were exposed to aerosolized virus by a face mask uh, uh, contracted uh, influenza. There was also a study that showed that if you intranasally infected college students, they would get the flu, but they didn't get much flu. They didn't get very sick. Um, and it really didn't look the way natural flu looks. And many have cited this as suggestive that the way we get natural flu is by particles actually getting into the deep lung rather than just accessing the upper part of our respiratory tract. And what are the particles that get to the deep lung? They are the smaller particles, the particles in aerosol range, uh, less than uh, uh, 20 uh, microns. Well, where the rubber meets the road is, is does it make a difference whether you use a respirator or a surgical mask? And uh, there are some studies that have uh, looked at that. Uh, this is one that Mark Loeb did up in Canada. The bottom line here was that it didn't seem to make very much difference. Um, I looked at uh, about 50 nurses, uh, um, or I'm sorry, 225 nurses in surgical masks, 221 with respirators, and about the same in each group uh, uh, got uh, uh, influenza. Um, this is a recently published meta-analysis. And what you see you know, in the RCTs, the cohort, and the case control studies is that they all tended toward the respirator being a little bit more protective. But none of these studies was actually statistically uh, significant. There's a study going on right now. And I tried very I, I actually talked with Lou Radonovich um, last week. I was trying to see if he would leak some information to me that I could share with you. This is a really important study. It's going on in seven outpatient centers. It's 
jointly funded by CDC and the VA. Um, they have 5,000 person seasons of data. Um, and it's a cluster randomized design where they're comparing respirators uh, to medical masks, basically surgical masks. And they're looking as principal outcomes um, Influenza, and they're also looking at influenza-like illness. Uh, the analysis is actually going to be going on over the next uh, couple of months. Um, if this is a positive study, if this clearly shows that respirators are more protective than face masks for influenza and other respiratory viruses, this will be a big deal. Um, we'll see. We'll see. But it's a, it's, it's, it is a well-done study. It's the largest uh, uh, to date. So we'll see what the result of that is. I'm going to skip over this. Time's getting a bit short. Um, so how does this stuff find its way into guidance? <coughs> so in 2009, the decision was that spring, CDC made the decision to use airborne precautions for novel H1N1. And the reason was young people were dying, an unvaccinated population, a new strain. We didn't know enough about how it was transmitted. Basically, the precautionary principle. It was tough to implement this. And many hospitals and even state health departments sort of departed from the guidance fairly quickly. And it was hard to do. We had a $1 million stockpile. Uh, in our health system of respirators. And we even ran out of the small size 1860s and had to access the, uh, the state uh, uh, stockpile. Uh, over the summer, there was a council of advisors to the president that essentially said, listen to what Shea Itza and uh, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics have to say. Those uh, uh, um, uh, groups were in favor of returning to droplet precautions and saying there really wasn't adequate evidence base here. OSHA pushed pretty hard to maintain airborne precautions. And CDC and OSHA commissioned IOM to make a decision on this. Um, and in September, IOM said, we stay with airborne uh, precautions. And so for novel H1N1, that was what was used. Um, and the vestige of that is that now the guidance when you are working with a flu patient doing a aerosol generating procedure like intubation or bronchoscopy, the instruction is to wear a respirator because of the possibility of short-range aerosol uh, uh, transmissions. Um, California has taken it one step uh, further. They have their own uh, Airborne transmissible disease standard, and the recommendation there is actually a powered air purifying respirator when you're doing exposure-prone uh, procedures. Well, what is, what is next? Um, just a couple of words on uh, uh, Ebola. Um, prior to 2014, of course, uh, uh, there was no epidemic that uh, 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 compared. Um, and this is what the numbers look like. By the way, 876 healthcare workers were infected with Ebola, 509 deaths among healthcare workers uh, uh, in West Africa. And when, when we were addressing Ebola, we had to address too, you know, is there evidence of airborne spread of Ebola? Is it possible there's short-range aerosol spread of this? And most of the studies suggested that direct contact uh, uh, was possible. And there was, there was, a, there was a, a, a basic agreement that that was how Ebola uh, uh, spread. Most studies were typical of this. This was uh, um, a family spread uh, study, 27 Ebola cases, 28 secondary cases. There were no transmissions among any family members living in those homes who didn't have direct contact uh, with the patients. This is what has been typical of Ebola. But, uh, but this, the Rolls study, is one that got discussed uh, a lot. This um, was a study done on uh, uh, the Kikwit outbreak, which was the largest Ebola outbreak prior to the West African outbreak, 316 cases in all. And there were 55 cases where it wasn't clear how the people had gotten Ebola disease. And 44 of those individuals were enrolled in a case control study, uh, each person with a, uh, a family control and a couple of uh, community controls. And what they found was if you had Ebola, you were more likely to have been hospitalized, to have received an injection, uh, to be a healthcare worker, to have visited a sick patient, attended a funeral, prepared a body, had direct physical contact. So in so they actually were able to find some of those risk factors that hadn't been found prior to the study. But out of the 55 people, there were still 12 individuals where there was no clear source. Didn't know how they had gotten Ebola. Now, 
Almost all the information came from surrogates uh, here, so there may have been incomplete information. But at the same time, some people looked at this with concern and said, well, gosh, you know, how did those people get sick if they really had no uh, uh, direct uh, uh, contact? And there's also some animal evidence for this. This was, there was a study looking at whether interferon uh, was helpful in treating uh, uh, monkeys with Ebola virus. It turned out that it was not. But there were control monkeys in cages about 10 feet away from the infected monkeys. And about 10 days after the last infected monkey died, two of the three controlled monkeys died. All the animal husbandry started with the control monkeys, went to the sick monkeys. Uh, there had been no con direct contact between uh, those monkeys. And there was concern that the sick monkeys coughing, that there may have been aerosol uh, uh, spread to the well monkeys. Now, my friends at the CDC say monkeys throw stool at each other. <laughs> Don't believe this, but it, it, it's, it's still of some, of some concern. Um, there was also, uh, with the Restin virus, uh, which is an Ebola virus that doesn't kill human beings, um, uh, evidence that monkeys that didn't have direct contact with one another had infected one another, and there were several workers in that setting who hadn't gotten scratched um, uh, uh, who uh, had positive antibodies to it. And there's a study that aerosolized Ebola, uh, uh, had a monkey breathe it, and, were, and then they were able to show that with fairly uh, uh, low titers of virus, uh, the monkey uh, got sick and on autopsy looked like naturally occurring uh, uh, Ebola uh, disease. Um, I think that I will sort of skip our experience. We had a, uh, a person under investigation for Ebola who was treated at Yale New Haven Hospital. Uh, uh, like Sabia, it turned the hospital upside down. We learned lots of lessons, spent a tremendous amount of time trying to nail the donning and doffing procedure, because I think probably what happened in Texas is that there were errors in the doffing of equipment and the individuals uh, contaminated uh, uh, themselves. So. <clears throat> What are, what are we left with? I think that when, when we review a large number of studies, we're generally taught to concentrate on the center part of the bell curve. Um, knowing, uh, and when, when the studies address something of low hazard, we know that there may be occasional transmissions that are unusual, but we're willing uh, to live with those. When something is of much higher consequence, then the, then the precautionary principle instructs us that that's really not an acceptable uh, uh, thing to do. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, Jose and Mached, the Moy Gardens and a grounded uh, Alaskan airplane actually, uh, tell that story of unusual transmissions, um, much in contrast uh, uh, to what usually happens. And I think it's particularly important to pay attention to this when we have mechanistic studies that have shown with, with unidirectional airflow, low humidity, large quantities of virus, that there seems to be some capacity on occasion uh, for longer range carriage of uh, an infectious uh, uh, particle. Um, obviously, we need to understand this better. Um, and um, it, we'll have to see what happens in the future. The, the, the period of highest risk for healthcare workers is before anyone knows what's going on. Right? It's before any kind of precaution is put into place. We saw this in Singapore and Vietnam with SARS. We see it in, in other settings. And it may be that in the future we'll have more interventions to keep healthcare workers safe that don't require the healthcare's active participation. Maybe 10 years from now there will be higher ventilation rates. Uh, in public areas of hospitals, we may pay attention to maintaining higher humidity rates. Maybe it'll become more acceptable to mask patients uh, than it is now. I think, I think time will tell, and we need better data before we could, we could just, uh, justify some of those interventions. But even when we have better data, it may only just reveal more clearly to us a phenomenon that is inherently uh, uh, fairly difficult uh, to uh, predict. And so. I'll finish with just the role of caution, which is something that we have to uh, maintain. When I was a student here, I had the pleasure of taking uh, a Shakespeare course with Peter Saccio. Uh, we did not read Troilus and Cressida. And I think if there is a, an obscure Shakespeare play, it's probably Troilus and uh, Cressida. But in Act Three, Scene Two, Troilus says, fears make devils of cherubims they never see truly. And Cressida answers, Blind fear that seeing reason leads finds safer footing than blind reason stumbling without fear. To fear the worst oft cures the worst. Thank you.
Well, I think we have time for just one or two questions. Anybody want to get us started? I, I actually have a question I can yeah. start with. Um, first of all, thank you for an excellent uh, presentation and one that is of obvious relevance to everybody in the audience. Um, so the practical aspects of implementing uh, N95 masks, yeah. uh, it's hard enough, I think, to get people to wear masks. It's hard to get people to get vaccinated. Yep. Um, if that's if that's to be done on a much wider scale for a, yep. the flu season. Yeah, no, it's very challenging. And, and, and by the way, I think it's possible that one of the reasons we haven't more clearly seen a benefit of the N95 versus a surgical mask for typical viral respiratory infections is that wearing an N95 for very long, it's terrible. And, and you know, people, people move them and they adjust them. And, and if the net result is that somebody moving the thing is contaminating themselves while they do it by having their hands up around their faces, then we haven't gotten very far. I think the other thing is that the N95 is all wrapped up in uh, an OSHA standard that was designed for general industry and requires a yearly fit testing of a one-size-fits-all paper mask. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of resource that's required uh, uh, to do that. And OSHA's initial impact statements, oh, yeah, you need to do that in about 5% of your healthcare workers. Well, that's just not realistic. Um, but to fit test annually every single healthcare worker for a paper mask, I think, I think OSHA shot itself in the foot a little bit with that. I think that if people regarded N95s a little bit more like a surgical mask and said, hey, this is a better surgical mask, let's use that one, put it on their face, went in and out of a room, and we had a, a, a sort of occasional training on, to make sure everyone knew how to use it, that that would be better. But I think part of the problem is it's wrapped up in sort of the whole infrastructure that comes from OSHA's general industry standard for N95s. I hope there's no one from OSHA here. <laughs> <laughs> Any other last questions? We probably have just one. Yeah. So uh, there's some people who feel as though ultraviolet is an engineering intervention really would be the way to go. And uh, that has been tried in yeah. some schools in yeah. the Massachusetts area with empirical and yeah. studies. So in occupational medicine, you always try the engineering approach rather than personal protective. Right. So why, why not kind of move more in that direction? It seems relatively cheap, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, so I think, I think I th people have regarded um, um, high levels of negative pressure isolation as being more effective for tuberculosis than upper zone UV irradiation. And, and, and because people have basically built negative pressure isolation following the, the CDC tuberculosis guidelines, but that has really sort of taken over. I, I agree with you. I actually think it's something that needs to be explored a little further, along with you know, um, making sure that you have mixing of the strata um, it's regarded as being not quite as effective as, as, as high-level uh, uh, negative pressure isolation, but, but I think it's actually something worthy of, of study. I mean, it's one of the things that maybe 10, 15 years from now we'll be back into hospitals. Thank you so very much. Um, hope you enjoy your trip back. To Thank you. We're going to climb this a lot today. I'm going to try to climb this a lot today. We'll yeah. see if the weather cooperates. Yeah, I actually think it's not going to be too hot. Yeah. I don't know what your weather